Welcome to San Pedro, the podcast. My name is Mike Stark. San Pedro, the podcast is a virtual snapshot of the news, culture, politics, and the people of San Pedro. The segment of Los Angeles that sits between the Vincent Thomas Bridge and the breakwater to the port of Los Angeles. This time on San Pedro the Podcast, we'll check in on San Pedro's own L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn and her weekly Facebook presentation, Janice Journal Live. We have some highlights that will give you some perspective on how L.A. County is going to gauge the reopening of society here in Southern California. Also, we'll virtually visit San Pedro's Altice for a webinar with California State University Long Beach shark expert, Chris Lowe. But first, what's going on with the kids in school? I'm Richard Wagoner. I am a math teacher at San Pedro High School. Richard, thanks for joining us on San Pedro, the podcast. And I wanted to get with you. Uh, I get with you every week. Let's do a full disclosure here. We do another podcast together called Radio Waves. I've never uh, met where- you in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you write the radio column for The Breeze and the Press-Telegram and all of those newspapers. And we do a radio podcast weekly, which we've just recently taken up again because we can do it this way. But uh, you also are a teacher at San Pedro High School. So I wanted to get a rundown of exactly how schooling works under these coronavirus conditions. It actually works better than I thought. I was just checking this morning, in fact, to see how many of my kids have been logging on and seeing how many are accessing the site. And it turns out that 100% have logged on within at least the past week. They're not necessarily logging on daily, but at least 100% logged on in the past week. And the vast majority of my students have gotten to my site and reached my assignments in the last couple days. So, It's better than I would have thought. I I have a feeling that some areas probably have an issue if there's internet access problems or equipment access problems. And, of course, some of the kids aren't aren't going to be quite as motivated. But I was actually pleasantly surprised when I I logged in this morning and checked that out. So... So so logistically, how does this work as as a student uh, uh, doing your classes? Because obviously you're just one class. They have five or six different classes. So how, do, how does this logistically work for the student? Well, we've already had a system where they can log in and check their grades. And we've always had the capability of uploading assignments to this platform. And I've done that somewhat in the past, right? Upload things and say, hey, check this out. Let me know if you like it. And the kids can log in. You can even give online tests where they actually enter the the answers right there. And I can either grade it instantly if it's multiple choice or I can look at it later as a teacher. Um, But what I've been doing, and I know there's... We're kind of evolving as we go. We're learning new things. Zoom is one of the platforms that some of the teachers are trying for for basically in-class lectures. And LA Unified is setting up a system where they, they want people to meet at least a couple times a week in some sort of way, this being one of the recommended ways. Mm. What I've been doing up till now is making notes that 
I kind of write them as if I were conversational and talking with them in class. I do try to keep them concise and to the point, and I try to give lots of examples of what we're trying to do, and then I attach an assignment to it where, and it's not long because I know that the the kids are having problems. You know, I, I don't want to take up all their time. I know they have other kids in the family that need to get their own lessons. I know they may have to deal with their brothers and sisters as far as babysitting. I know they have family responsibilities. So I am trying to be cognizant of the fact that they may not have as much time as we hope they would. But again, concise. I, I try to get the assignments so that they're straight to the point, concise, uh, testing their learning. And then what I do is I upload that as a file. And then the next day, I will give the answers to the previous day's assignment and bring in new notes and then a new assignment. And then I have an open discussion area for any questions. Um, students can write questions to me via email or, or uh, via the platform. We happen to use Schoology. Not my favorite program, but it's one we're kind of stuck with. But it works. And, you know, kids can write to me that way and I can answer as soon as I can. And since I'm stuck in the house, it's pretty much almost instantly all day long. So for the student, they multiply this process by the number of classes they have at school, right? Right. right. Uh, keeping in mind that most kids aren't going to have necessarily six academic classes, um, PE will do something else. They probably, I, I imagine the PE teachers are probably sending um, information on nutrition and, mm. um, uh, you know, workouts they can do in the home and things like that. Um a lot of people think of PE only as running and calisthenics and whatever else, but there is an education component and learning about nutrition and movement and things like that are something the coaches can send as well. But again, most of the classes don't need to be heavy, intense academic classes. So I figure the typical student probably has three, four really heavy classes, a few that are a little bit easier unless they're taking all APs. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, Am I wrong? I, I At one point, weren't you teaching a surfing class? Yes. I'm not doing it this semester because fall is surf and, and spring is volleyball. And, you know, it, there's not a lot you can do with things like that because they are ex, <laughs> you know, total sports activity classes. I do keep in touch with the kids. I do send them uh, suggested exercises and suggested ways to kind of keep things in touch. And we try to encourage things. That's a big thing, by the way. I wanted to point that out. Um, you know, depression, being stuck mm. in your house, having a routine broken. Um, a lot of kids are already kind of, you know, school was their reality check and a lot of them are missing that. So one of the things I do try to do is stay tremendously positive. You know, we're all in this together. We're all going to get through it. And when we get through it, we're going to come out even better. So, you know, keep the faith, you know, stay up with your work as much as you can, Take care of your family. Take care of yourself, um, and we'll all be good. Well, that's that's a real positive message in this in this time of uh, real negativity in a lot of respects. And and uh, I want to uh, check in with you on a regular basis and see how this is going as we move along. Sure. Because you seem you seem to be happy with it so far. So we'll see how it do, how it goes over the long haul. If the kids are dedicated, it it will work well. It, I mean, some kids aren't going to be, and that's. But you're going to have that same problem when you're in school anyway. I was that kid. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, some of that kid actually ends up doing better on this because, you know, they have no disruptions. 
They oh, can't be true. the class clown. They can't go out and ditch. They're already ditching. So it, you know, <laughs> as long as they log in, um, so we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, I'm I'm doing my best. I gave an actual uh, test the other day, and uh, if the kids did well, they're great. If they didn't do well, I I send them hints on what to to redo, and then they can redo just the parts that they messed up on. And, and you know, again, we're trying to do it with no pressure. This may be something that that changes people's minds about how to teach once we get back in school, because mm. this has been kind of my mantra for a long time. I don't want to confuse the kids when they're in class. I do want it to be concise. I always give time to work in class. So, you know, it's just an extension of that. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Richard. And uh, thanks for joining us on uh, San Pedro, the podcast. LA County supervisor, Janice Hahn lives in San Pedro. She recently started a weekly Facebook feature called Janice Journal Live. Here are a few highlights from the most recent episode where she lays out some facts about the coronavirus pandemic and how the county plans to reopen our world. Hi, everybody. I'm Supervisor Janice Hahn, and welcome to the second edition of my Janice Journal Live it's the first time I've ever done anything like this, so I wasn't really sure how it was going to go over. But I like having the opportunity to talk to you all just in a casual way, chatting about what's going on in our lives as we're all facing a new normal with this um, pandemic that we're experiencing. Uh, COVID-19 is the leading cause of death in L.A. County. So I know... Probably not all of you who are watching this, but there were people who just, for some reason, thought this was no more serious than a bad case of the flu. Well, we now have medical data that says that's just not true. And in fact, COVID, here's the stats. COVID-19 has killed an average of 44 people per day in LA County. 44 people a day have died as a result of COVID-19. COVID Let's compare that to the flu. Five people a day will die during the flu season. Eight people will die per day of emphysema and 31 people will die per day of heart disease. So having 44 people die per day in LA County because of COVID-19 makes this the leading cause of death in LA County. And I think that is what is driving our county health officials um, to make their decisions about continuing to urge people to stay at home. This is not uh, a virus that you wanna catch. This is not a virus that you want your um, elderly parents or grandparents to catch. This is not a virus if you have an underlying health condition already, like asthma or high blood pressure or um, you know, a heart condition. You don't want to get this virus. So I think that has been driving all of our decisions uh, about why we've closed down so much of Los Angeles County. Um, so USC and the county together randomly tested about a thousand people. Um, just randomly, we gave them this antibody test to see whether or not they have actually had it, but didn't know that they had it. And the results of those tests show that many, many more people have had this 
than what our testing shows. And honestly, mostly that's because we've only tested people with symptoms. So even now, um, we're telling people if you're if you have symptoms, you can get a test. And I talked about last week how I think we should be testing everybody because we're never going to really know who's who's had this, who's come in contact with, unless we test everybody. So it's still a really big problem, but. This test, the study, showed that somewhere between 220,000 and 440,000 adults in Los Angeles County have been infected. Um, that represents about 5% of our population. So that means 95% of us who haven't gotten it yet um, are still vulnerable because Let's just be real about this. Until we have a vaccine, everyone is vulnerable except those we think that have already had it and now have the antibodies to keep them immune. So we're all still really vulnerable and I just want you to think about that statement when I, t when I continue to talk about why things are still shut down and closed and it'll probably be a while till we reopen Los Angeles County. Um, and the other thing that I think we have to really think about is if we went back to normal right now, which I know everybody really wants to do, I know I do, um, and we stopped physical distancing, many more people um, would, we know for a fact, would become vulnerable and become infected. But I know you do want me to talk about what reopening will look like. And let me just say, I'm with you 100%. I feel the same way that you do. I mean, many of us are over this idea of staying home, of physical distancing, of missing our friends and family, of realizing that just to do simple things like to go to the grocery store are monumental because you have to wear a mask and you have to make sure you're standing on the markers six feet away from the next person. Everything is more challenging, um, but everybody wants to know when will we begin reopening uh, different sectors in um, Los Angeles County. Just want to remind everybody that the Safer at Home order that's been ordered by our County Department of Public Health is still in effect and it will be until May 15th. We will be having a plan that we can announce on how we reopen um, businesses and beaches and the thing that I love about Governor Newsom, which by the way, I think he's doing a great job every day in, in his briefings and certainly in his leadership for our state, is he reminds us that reopening uh, California is not like a light switch that we just turn on and turn off. It's more like um, you know the dimmer switch on your light switch where you just barely get it lighter, barely get it darker. Um, that's what this is going to look like. Um, we won't just be normal again. We won't just be able to go out to our favorite restaurants, go out to happy hour at our bars, walk into all of our businesses just like we used to. It's going to be a slow, steady, small doses of reopening our society. And, you know, we have to be prepared that this safer, safer at home order might be extended or we might have to go back to it if we begin opening our businesses, our beaches, our restaurants, and then we have a huge surge of cases again. 
we as a society will have to be prepared to go back to the way we were, staying at home and closing back down our businesses and our beaches. Um, so, again, we need to be prepared to do this in a responsible way until we have a drug that treats you if you get it or a vaccine that prevents you from getting it in the first place. So, again, back to the beaches, you know, we might open hiking trails too. Um, uh, again, with, with physical distancing and walking again, maybe along the beach with physical distancing and wearing masks, we might try that. Um, then, you know, after we do some recreational places, we might look at opening businesses like retail stores, again, with physical distancing. Um, and we might open, let restaurants reopen. And I think I talked about this last week that maybe a restaurant that normally serves 50 people, they can say, you know what, tonight, 35 people and we'll sit them all outside, physical distancing, the wait staff, the, the, the chefs, everybody will wear masks. Um, maybe we can try that again after May 15th. And I think it's going to be different for different industries, um, retail industry, commercial industry, recreational industries. We have businesses that don't interact with the public that just manufacture something. Maybe they begin to reopen, making sure that their workers are safe at all times. So great being with all of you again. Thank you. I, I think about everybody every day. I know this is hard. This is so strange that we're all living in it. I've had people say, I'm so over this. I get it. Uh, let's stay together a little bit longer. Please call our office, 213-974-4444. If you have any issues or complaints, all of our, my staff is working every day from home and we can still help you. We can still get you to the right person for whatever help you need. Um, thank you, though. Big shout out to all of you who have done this right. And we're going to look back at this and we will be proud of ourselves for, you know, meeting the moment, never having expected this, never having really heard the name coronavirus, COVID-19 ever. And still, we knew what to do. We did it. We did it together. Um, and thank you for that. So I'll see you next Friday. Finally, Altasea bumps up next to the Pacific Ocean in San Pedro with a mission to, quote, develop solutions to the planet's most pressing challenges, end quote. During the pandemic, they are offering a series of online webinars on various ocean-related topics. The first session was about sharks and was conducted by California State University Long Beach's shark expert, Chris Lowe. Here are some highlights from the Q&A that followed his presentation. What is the common ancestor of sharks and rays? Ah, good. Good question. So the common ancestor of sharks and rays. So they're the oldest known vertebrate, true vertebrate. So their closest known relatives are the hagfish, um, the, the lamprey. Uh, those were pre-vertebrates. So those are the ones that are kind of the most primitive of the vertebrates. So that's where they came from. Sharks, that group, have been around for about 400 plus million years. Okay, so the second question comes from Caitlin. She asks, in movies and media, sharks have always been portrayed as a horror trope. And many people are afraid of sharks because of movies like Jaws, Megalodon, or even Discovery Channel Shark Week. 
What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about sharks and why are they a source of fear for many people? Well, she's absolutely right. So it's the media's portrayal of sharks that quite often foster the fear. And what I think we're learning is that that attitude is changing, mainly because we're learning more about sharks and we're getting that information out to the public. Believe it or not, many shark populations have been overfished for 40 or 50 years and are just now starting to come back so that people actually have a chance of seeing a shark when they go in the ocean. And when you go surfing and you see a baby white shark swim by and nothing happens, maybe you start thinking, well, maybe those movies were exaggerated. Maybe they're not as scary as they were made out to be. And what most people probably don't know is if you spent any appreciable amount of time in the water off Southern California, I can almost guarantee a white shark swim by you and you didn't even know it. So not to scare you, it's just they're there, it's their home, we're visitors, and they're not bothering people. So I think the more people learn about sharks, the more those things become like Sharknado. They're kind of fun and campy and they don't make any sense and nobody thinks that's real. She also asks, because dolphins are capable of learning, are sharks as well? Sure. They're not nearly as smart as dolphins. Um, You know, that part of their brain is actually pretty small, but sharks actually have a very large brain to body weight um, compared to many other vertebrates, including some mammals and some birds. But most of that brain is dedicated to sensory information, interpreting sensory information, like being able to detect odors in the water or hearing. So it's those parts of the brain that make them very good predators, finding food, Um, not deep thinkers, but they are quick learners. So, for example, we know in places like Hawaii or places where commercial fishermen fish that sharks can actually learn the sound of certain fishermen's boats. So they know when they're going to throw old bait away and they'll hear their boat and they'll go directly to their boat. And when the fishermen change engines and they have a new engine, the sharks get confused. So we know that they can learn those things fairly quickly um, and and they can retain that information for long periods of time. Okay, so this is kind of a two pronged question. So Kevin asks why sharks prefer warm water and kind of coupled with that, Lisa also asks, they know, we know they are, they are survivors, but with all the climate change issues, um, how does that impact sharks in general? Mm -hmm. Really good questions. So let's start with the warm water one first. So the great thing about sharks is they're found in pretty much all ocean environments, the deep sea, they're found in estuaries, they're found in the tropics, they're found in temperate water, they're found in polar waters, they're found all over. Now there tend to be more in warmer water, more species and higher abundances, but not necessarily in not found in other habitats. So in fact, the deep sea is kind of where we find new species all the time. I have a colleague, Dave Ebert, and he and his students are discovering new species of sharks all the time. So, and most of those are coming from deep sea or remote locations. So there, there are a lot of colder watered sharks out there. Okay, so climate change is probably going to affect where sharks hang out. Um, as oceans continue to warm, some species that don't like warm water are going to get pushed further towards the poles, towards cooler water, or push deeper. And the question there is, will there be sufficient food for them? So these are the things that we don't understand. Um, What we are hopeful about is that sharks have been around for 400 million years, by and large, as a taxa, as as a group, they've been very evolutionarily successful. And we think a lot of that has to do with the fact that their physiology is kind of unique compared to other species. 
they're diverse in terms of the habitats that they occupy, and most of them are very mobile. Jace G asks, how many different species of sharks are there? Uh, so that's the that's a question that we'll get biologists arguing, right? So in the last, I'd say last 20 years, we've added probably about 100 new species of sharks to the list. Um, probably somewhere in the 400s, mid 400s. Um, and like I said, I have colleagues that are discovering new species every year. So the deep sea is largely unexplored. We know less about the deep sea than we knew about space. So um, there's probably a, a lot more sharks up there to be discovered. And what we don't know is, are some species going extinct faster than we can find them? David asks, how often do sharks feed? And Lara asks, do they have social interactions? Well, those are really good questions that, like I said in, in my um, presentation, that we're trying to figure out. And it, it hasn't been until recently that we've had some of the technology and tools to answer those questions. Most species of sharks are what we call ectotherms. Their bodies are the same temperature as the water they move through. Um, and what that means is when the water's cold, their metabolisms are low. When the water's warm, their metabolisms go up. So just the water temperature alone is going to affect how much food they need. Now, most cold-bodied sharks that are the size of, say, a um, seventh grader, um, a seventh grader is burning about 2,500 calories a day, right? Um, we have to eat three meals. Seventh graders are probably eating four or five meals a day, right? They're growing fast, high metabolism. The same size cold-bodied shark is only burning at probably about 250 calories a day. So they may only have to eat like maybe a couple small meals a day or one small meal a day or once every three or four days. So those animals have much, much lower costs. But then we have species like white sharks and mako sharks that are what we call endotherms. They can keep their bodies warmer than the water they swim through. And that means they burn more calories, but they can swim faster. That's how they can take down things like marine mammals that are very, very fast and agile um, and, and are very intelligent and social. So those are, are rare in the shark world, but they do have higher costs. So those sharks may have to eat more often. Now, a big white shark that scavenges on a dead whale that's just eating these big chunks of blubber, a meal of 400 pounds of whale meat may last that white shark a month. It may not have to eat again for a month. Mark asks, he and his sons and his friends were out uh, surfing in Hermosa Beach, and they had juvenile white sharks jumping out of the water just outside the surf line. Are there, do you have any thoughts to why that would be happening? Yeah, that's a big mystery. People don't know why they do it. So there are a bunch of theories. One is they might be chasing bait fish and, you know, launching at them. Um, what's really interesting is usually when you see adults that breach, adult white sharks breaching at, at marine mammals, they breach like a dolphin, right? So they land on their belly or land face first. Um, usually when we see the young ones jump, they land on their backs or they land on their sides. So one of the other hypotheses that we have is that they may be doing that to dislodge parasites on their body. So one of the things that our cameras have seen, you know, our, our uh, shark selfie stations, is that these sharks will, if they have these little, what are called copepods, they're like little crustaceans that, that move around the skin and they probably itch. So what the sharks do is they rub on the sand. They'll even rub on the selfie pole. Um, so one of the other things we think they do is jump out of the water and land on their back to try to dislodge some of the parasites because they itch. We have many more questions, but we're running out of time here. And I just wanted to thank Chris. Thank you so much. This, um, sure. I learned more about sharks than I did from Sharknado. So um, 
thank you so much. And I just want to tell everyone that we're going to be having more of these throughout to see Project Blue at home. It's a webinar series we've launched that we just hope to have more guests as good as Dr. Lowe to teach us about what's going on in the ocean and how the ocean can save the world. So be tuned for that. Follow us on all the social media platforms. And uh, I wish we could just give you a big round of applause, Chris. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. And thank you for joining us for San Pedro, the podcast. Please like our Facebook page, share and subscribe to the podcast at facebook.com. San Pedro podcast, all one word. See you next time.